The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The title of our sermon this morning is Grace Abounding. Grace Abounding. This is part two. Our primary text, Romans chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. So this morning, as we return to our verse-by-verse consideration of Paul's epistle to the church at Rome, uh, we find ourselves now at the conclusion of chapter 5, and at the conclusion of chapter 5, really in the midst of a transition that's going to lead us into chapter 6, okay? And through chapter 5, Paul has been building a case. He's been building a case for the security, for the assurance, if you will, of the one who has been justified by faith alone apart from works of the law. And Paul, in building this case, is like a masterful attorney. Uh, He turns over every rock, as it were. He uh, uncovers every hidden gem. And Paul, like a masterful attorney, is weaving now an airtight case for the consideration of the jury. And Paul begins that case really with the blessedness of our justified status in chapter 5, verse 1. Look there with me. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore... Having now been justified, in other words, having been declared to be righteous in God's sight, having been justified by or through the means of faith, rather than through the means of our works, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have been ushered, as it were, into a blessed status, transferred, conveyed out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His love. It's through him, through the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 2, that we have access by faith into this justifying grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We've been given tremendous blessings in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Tremendous blessings that accrue to us through the work, through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, through faith in him. Now, not only do we have a secure hope in that future glory, hope in the glory of God, that grace is at work even through our difficulties in the present, verse 3. And not only that, not only do we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, but we also glory in present tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now, ours, our hope, brothers and sisters, is a hope that does not disappoint It will not fail, will not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. God demonstrates his own love toward us, toward undeserving sinners, in that while we were still sinners, while still in our sin, while still at enmity with God due our sin, Christ died for us. So then, Having been justified in that way, in the sight of God, through the, death, uh, through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, having been justified as sinners then, much more we shall certainly be saved from the wrath of God through Christ, verse 9. If because of the sin of Adam many die, then much more then, because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, God having sent his only begotten son into the world, the many who place their faith and trust in him will certainly live through grace. Verse 15. 
And if death reigns through the disobedience of the one, then much more believers will reign in eternal life through Jesus Christ, verse 17. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. You see all the blessings of our salvation contained in those words of Paul, much more, much more, much more, much more. Uh, We have every reason to rejoice in hope and to be assured of our salvation, to be assured of the work that has been done for us, accomplished for us in the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, through that very brief summary of the chapter, we're then brought to the question that occupies Paul's thought in the text under our consideration this morning, verses 20 and 21. If we're not justified, think with me now, if we're not justified by works of the law, and if we're not even ultimately condemned by our own works under the law, but rather ultimately condemned by the sin of Adam, then what is the purpose of the law? Why was the law given? If God has determined to deal with human beings, with men, with you and I, according to our relationship to one of these two men, either Adam or Jesus Christ, and if we are condemned, as it were, through the imputation or the the accounting of Adam's sin to us, and if we are saved, if we're justified through the imputation or the accounting of Christ's righteousness to us, then what purpose does the law serve? You see the importance of the question, right? What purpose does the law serve? Now, last week, in part one, we considered the question of law. Uh, this morning now, having considered the question of law, we want to turn and consider now the answer of grace. The answer of grace. Verse 20, look there with me. Moreover... The law entered, or the law appeared alongside sin, so that the offense might abound, so that the offense of our sin might increase. It's the purpose that Paul states here for the law being given. Not the only purpose of the law, but one purpose of the law, and a purpose that it meets uh, Paul's uh, need here to discuss, to answer this question. Moreover, the law entered, it appeared alongside sin, so that the offense might abound so that the offense of our sin might increase. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So in considering the question of law, we learned last week that the law came in alongside. It was brought in alongside the offense, alongside our sin, so that, according to the law, the offense of our sin might abound. It's so the offense of sin might increase. It does not mean that they were not sinning, right? When Paul says they had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam from Adam to Moses, it doesn't mean that they weren't sinning, but they weren't sinning according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. They hadn't sinned as Adam had sinned against an expressly stated, verbally communicated positive law, right? God told Adam, don't eat that tree. Don't eat of that tree. And Adam directly disobeyed an express commandment of God. Those from Adam to Moses hadn't sinned in the likeness of of the transgression of Adam in that way. They hadn't been given a verbally communicated, expressly written or codified law. But now, so that the offense might abound, so that the offense of sin might increase, God gives the law, right? God gives the law. 
One of the reasons that God gave the law, again, was to increase the offense of their sin against him. It's not the only purpose of the law, but it's a very important purpose of the law. Now, that doesn't mean, as we consider this, that doesn't mean that God gave the law to tempt men to sin. It doesn't mean that God gave the law to cause men to sin. James chapter 1, verse 13 says that God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does God himself tempt anyone. God's not the author of sin. We have to remember, keep our, our minds focused on this point. God's not the problem. The law isn't the problem. What's the problem? Man's wicked heart. Man's sinful heart is the problem. What it does mean, however, the law given for this purpose, what it does mean is that the law was meant to, or given to reveal our sin, to expose our sin, for us to see our sin as exceedingly sinful. As we talked about that last week, it increases the knowledge, our knowledge of our sin. It increases our conviction over sin. The law even exposes our rebellion and our proclivity to sin. Uh, Paul saying that in chapter Romans chapter 7, uh, there around verse 5, verse 7, that sin has, or our desire for sin is aroused through the law. And that, peeling back then the layers of our own hypocrisy, our own sinfulness, our own depravity, confronting us in our sin. So the law then is necessary. The law is necessary. The law is necessary to expose the depravity of fallen sinners and that so that they might flee to their only hope. The only reason that someone would leave their sin, turn from their sin, forsake their sin, and turn to faith in Jesus Christ is because they see their need for a savior. They see their own depravity. They understand their offense against God, and they turn from sin to trust in Jesus Christ. You can't properly understand one without the other. We can't properly understand salvation or embrace the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ unless we understand the black backdrop of our sin. The black backdrop of our sin exposed under the law then becomes the only proper setting, if you will, for appreciating the brilliance or the glory of the gospel, the radiance of the grace of God that is revealed in the gospel. Again, the problem is not the law. Paul refers to the law as holy, just, and good. The problem is our wicked heart. Of many purposes for the law that are given in Scripture, the law then essentially acts as a mirror. The law as a mirror reveals or reflects the character of God, and the law as a mirror reveals or reflects the sinfulness of man. Now first, consider with me that the law as a mirror reveals the character of God or reflects the character of God. The law isn't only or merely a set of arbitrary rules and regulations. That's the way a lot of uh, unbelievers characterize the law of God or characterize Christianity. It's a bunch of rules, regulations, do's and don'ts, things we can and can't do. The law isn't merely a set of arbitrary rules or arbitrary regulations. The law reveals the perfect character of the lawgiver. The law of God is a transcript, if you will, a written transcript, tri- transcript of God's own character, God's own being. The law reveals God to us, if you will. The law reveals the perfect will of the one who created us in his image. The law reveals the will of the lawgiver. Do you see? The law of God proceeds from who God is. 
a written transcript of his being, the excellence of his person, right? The goodness inherent in all his ways. And if you say that you love God, you're going to love God's law, right? Because why is that? <laughs> it's because God's law is a transcript of his very character. It's a transcript of who God is. The blessed man of Psalm 1 delights in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. The psalmist says the ungodly are not so. Right? The psalmist says they give no regard. The ungodly give no regard for the law of God. And the ungodly will not stand in the judgment. Think about that for a moment. Those who love the Lord, love the Lord for what the Lord has done and for who the Lord is. Right? They love the excellence of his person. All his ways are goodness and mercy and righteousness and holiness. So they love the Lord. How inconsistent would it be for someone who says, I love the Lord to despise his law or to have no concern for his law, to neglect his law? No, the one who loves God loves the Lord's law. They see the law as Paul does, as holy, just, and good. They see the law as a transcript of God's very character. They love the Lord and they love and delight in his law. The psalmist says that the ungodly are not so. The one who meditates on the Lord, because he loves the Lord, meditates on his law day and night. What does it say of those who do not love the Lord, who do not meditate on his law day and night? The psalmist would say they are the ungodly. They give no regard for the law of God. They neglect the law of God. They have no concern for God or his law. And it says those ungodly will not stand in the judgment. First, the law is a mirror that reveals to us or reflects the very character of the lawgiver, the very character of God. Now, second, the law as a mirror then reveals or reflects the sinfulness or the depravity of man. As we look into the law of God, we see how far removed we are from that perfect standard, how far we are removed from that holy standard. The law is a mirror that exposes the depths of our own sinfulness, our own depravity. Those many, the many ungodly who care nothing for the law of God, who care nothing for the character of God, care nothing for their own depravity. And why is that? It's because they're not concerned with the law of God. They don't see their own depravity in the law. The degree to which we fail to live according to the purpose for which God created us is exposed by the law, is exposed by the law of God. God created you to live for his glory, and if you've lived entirely for yourself in rebellion against God, it's the law that shows you your own depravity. Do you see? So the law is a mirror that reflects the image of God. Also, the law is a mirror that reflects the depravity of man. Romans chapter 3, just one page to the left. Romans chapter 3, verse 19. We know that whatever the law says, verse 19, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. I'd submit to you that many today just want to skip over that part altogether. Right? They, um, we got to take our medicine. Right? Medicine that is good for you sometimes tastes awful going down. But you got to get it down so you can get better, right? In a similar fashion, sinners don't want, a lot of professing Christians don't want the law preached. 
Why? Because it's painful. It exposes our sin. It exposes our depravity. It exposes our rebellion, our sinful hearts. But listen, our rebellion, our sinful hearts must be exposed by the law because it's for our good. It causes us to flee to Jesus Christ for the only remedy, for the only hope that we have. And we must have our guilt exposed by the law so that we will put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The whole world, the law is given so that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. You can't skip that step. We can't jump over our own sin. We can't neglect our own sin and depravity and just skip over to grace. We don't understand grace apart from our own sin and depravity. We don't understand God's wondrous plan of salvation unless we first understand our great need for it. Jesus Christ said, I didn't come to save the righteous, right? but to call sinners to repentance. Those who are well have no need of a physician. There's nothing wrong with the law. And God is certainly not causing us to sin or tempting us to sin through the law, but rather where the law enters alongside our sinful proclivities, enters alongside our own sinful hearts, our own sinful nations, natures, the offense of our sin abounds. Why? Because the law draws attention to it. Now, Paul's purpose in Romans chapter 5 then answers the question of law. Verse 20, moreover, the law entered so that the offense might abound. However, wherever sin then abounds under the law, what is the answer of grace? How does grace answer? Verse 20, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, much more. Again, Paul uses one Greek word in the first two occurrences of that word abounded there abounded one word, but then he uses an entirely different Greek word for the last uh, uh, example of that word. Verse 20, grace abounded much more. The word literally means that grace superabounded. That grace came in as a tremendous, overwhelming, superabounding, lavish, overflowing excess, right? The word refers to an excess. Grace was poured out like a flood, where sin abounds, where we see sin in our own hearts, right? Where we see sin, grace comes in like a flood. And why does Paul use that kind of language here? He uses that language to make a point. There is simply no amount of sin that exceeds the reach of God's superabounding grace. If you will turn from your sin to trust Jesus Christ by faith, to entrust yourself to him as your savior, as the one who will deliver you from the wrath of God, if you'll turn in faith to Jesus Christ, there simply is no amount of sin that grace will not overwhelm as a flood. There simply is no amount of sin that grace can't forgive, that Jesus Christ can't atone for. Where sin abounds, grace floods in much more. The more that we understand the sense and the weight of our sin under the law, the more amazing this grace is, right? And we're to see in the law, we're to see in God's word, the weight of our sin, the depths of our depravity. God says that the worship of God that's acceptable to him 
is the worship of one who is contrite in heart, the one who is humble. The humble, he'll lift up. The proud, he cast down. You see? How are we humbled, brothers and sisters? We're humbled under the weight of the law. We're humbled by understanding God's holiness and our own sinfulness. That doesn't make morose, depressed, joyless, Eeyore Christians running around, you know, depressed all the time, in despair all the time. No, no, that creates, uh, produces by the grace of God and the Holy Spirit indwelling them. That produces joy inexpressible, gratitude in the heart of the Christian. Why? We understand what we've been given. We understand the depths of what we've been saved from. When we see our sinfulness, when we understand our depravity, then we worship and praise God who has lifted us up from such depths and has set us in the heavenly places with Christ. We see the the depths of our own depravity. This grace is amazing. Now, Everywhere today, there are churches all over the place that are singing amazing grace, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Have no appreciation for grace whatsoever. And why is that? Because churches don't preach the law not preaching against man's sin. And in that, there is no black backdrop against which the diamond of the gospel then is radiant, right? Is seen as spectacular. Paul uses a similar expression in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verse 54, where Paul says that death is swallowed up or engulfed in victory. Death is swallowed up in victory. It's the same basic idea. Right? Sin hasn't been merely canceled. Sin hasn't been merely balanced or counteracted. Grace doesn't simply undo the damage that sin has done. No. Sin has been engulfed in grace. Sin has been overwhelmed by grace. Sin has been wiped away, eradicated in grace. Where sin abounds, grace does much more. Imagine your life for a moment consisting of having a, a ledger with two columns. Right? Imagine your life as a ledger. One column contains a record of all the sins that you've committed. And with a clear conscience before God, think for a moment about all the sins that you've committed. You can't possibly name them all. You can't possibly name all the ways that you've sinned this morning. And you have a ledger that is stacked up to heaven a stench in the nostrils of a holy God, your sins stacked up on one side of that ledger. It threatens to sink you into hellfire. The other column on your ledger is a record of your righteousness. It is that perfect obedience to the law that is necessary to be right in God's sight. It's a record of your righteousness. That one column of your sins stacked up to heaven a reeking stench of filth, the other column, the column of your righteousness, is empty because you have none. All of your righteousnesses, God says, are like a filthy rag. They don't account for anything with God. So your ledger is entirely unbalanced, isn't it? One side of the the ledger filled with sin, the other side of the ledger entirely devoid of any righteousness whatsoever. Grace, brothers and sisters, does not merely balance out the two columns. It doesn't merely balance out the two columns. Grace doesn't come in and make your good 
sort of outweigh all of your bad so that at the end, somehow it just works out and God lets you into heaven. Grace obliterates the column that contains all of your sin. Christ, in his atoning work on the cross, pays the penalty. He takes all of the reeking sin found on that side of the ledger and he takes it upon himself. He bears that in his own body on the tree as he dies on the cross, bearing the penalty for your sin that you rightly deserve. He bears that penalty upon himself in your place. He dies in your stead. And not only does grace clear that column of your sin, laying it all upon Christ, grace fills the other column with righteousness. The righteousness that you need, the perfect obedience that you need to be justified in the sight of God, to be reconciled to God, to be right, to satisfy the demands of law. Grace fills that column with righteousness. The righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The righteousness that was earned by Jesus Christ through his perfect obedience to the law is filled, fills that column. Grace does not merely cancel death. Grace gives you life everlasting. And having been freed from bondage to death, we have joy everlasting, don't we? Where we see in those two columns the true depth to which sin has ruined us, we're better able to appreciate, understand, embrace the true heights to which grace and love and mercy and compassion has raised us in Jesus Christ, right? That's why there must be an adequate and biblical preaching of the law of God. It's one of the purposes that the law of God serves. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And that changes a person, doesn't it? Turn with me to Luke chapter 7. I want to give you an example of this. Luke chapter 7. Changes the way that we think. Changes the way that we believe. Changes the way that we see ourselves. Changes the way that we see God. Changes our affections. Changes our desires. Changes the Lord causing us to be born again. Changes our very natures takes out that stony, unconcerned heart and replaces it with a heart of flesh. Luke chapter 7, look there beginning at verse 36. We see this in the example of Jesus Christ in the house of Simon the Pharisee. Verse 36, and one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. He went to the Pharisee's house And he sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus was at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. She stood at his feet behind him weeping. She began to wash his feet with her tears, wiped them with the hair of her head, and she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. Why would she do such a thing? Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, he would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, knowing his thoughts, right, because he's God in the flesh, 
Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So Simon said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, well, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. So Jesus said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and he said to Simon, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. What a, a scathing rebuke, right? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, no greeting, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. In other words... Upon the evidence of her love, her sins have been forgiven. Upon the evidence or the fruit of this kind of affection for the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that her sins have been forgiven. Why? Because she loved much. She loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Grace answers our understanding of our sin. The answer of grace, you could say, is in direct proportion to our understanding of our own sinfulness, our own wickedness. This woman who saw herself as a sinner understood what Jesus Christ had done for her, understood the depths to which she had been raised in Jesus Christ, understood forgiveness and understood mercy, understood compassion, understood the Lord's love for her. And so what does she do? She loves much. Having been forgiven much, she loves much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. You don't consider your own sinfulness under the law. Then what exactly are you forgiven of? I remember having lunch with a guy years ago. Um, was witnessing, uh, and it was stirring up a bit of uh, difficulty in the church that I was going to before I came to this church. And so he asked me out to lunch, and basically just wanted to know from me what in the world is all the fuss about, right? What is the big deal? Easy believism, antinomianism, not preaching the law of God, not preaching the gospel of God. And people need to know they're going to perish in their sin. If they do not repent and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they will die and perish in hell eternally. We need to understand our own sinfulness before God. He said to me, I've never really seen myself as a sinner. You know, I'm a good person. And I know Jesus Christ has saved me. Entirely, right, whitewashing the whole ordeal. Do you see? Sweeping sin under the rug, no concern for his own depravity, no concern for his own sinfulness. Like, what are you being saved from? That's why we must preach the law to others as well as to ourselves. 
Charles Bridges says this, I love this. By the trumpet of the law, God proclaims war with sinners. By the jubilee trumpet of the gospel, he publishes peace on earth, goodwill toward men. What drives a sinner to pursue peace with God? God's proclaimed war against sinners. <laughs> the law is a sound of terror to convinced sinners, Bridges said. The gospel is a joyful sound, good tidings of great joy. The former represents God as a God of wrath and vengeance. The latter is a God of love and grace and mercy. The one presents God to sinners as a consuming fire. The other exhibits the precious blood of the lamb, which quenches the fire of his righteous indignation. The former a throne of judgment, the latter a throne of grace. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. So back in Romans chapter 5 then. Paul then explains this statement further in verse 21. He's made his point. We see the question of law, and he turns with an answer of grace. And then he further explains his statement in verse 21. Verse 21, so that just as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So just as sin exercises its dominion over man through the penalty of death that is associated with sin, in the same manner, or even so, in the same manner, grace is magnified through that righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is the gift of grace, and do that gift, grace reigns to eternal life through the person and work of Jesus Christ our Lord. Just as death or sin reigned in death. Think with me for a moment about that fact. Sin reigns through death. In other words, sin exercises its dominion over you in the fact that every single one of us will die. Sin exercises its dominion through death. In the same manner, grace reigns through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, through the gift of that righteousness to sinners, grace reigns to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that as sin reigns through death, grace reigns through eternal life. Do you see the comparison? Every person here this morning is in one of two camps. Every person here is in one of two camps. Either you are under sin and under sin's dominion, and you will die and perish in your sin, or you are under grace. He is either ruled by, governed by, or under the dominion of sin, or he is under the reign of grace. You and I were not born free. You're not born free. You're not here today free. You were born in bondage to sin. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 clearly spells this out for us among many texts in the Bible. Ephesians 2, Paul says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. David says, in sin, my mother conceived me, right? Dead on arrival. You are not born free. You were born in bondage. You are here this morning either under the dominion of sin, born in bondage to sin, born in bondage to death, or you are under the reign of grace. 
You were dead in trespasses and sins. Paul says, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, Satan, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we also once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. In other words, you were born a slave to sin, and slave, uh, a sin is a tyrant. You are a slave born under the dominion of that tyrant sin. Whatever freedom you think you have is an illusion. Do you see? No one is free who is destined for hell. If you have the condemnation of the law hanging over your head, you're not free. Less free than the one on the green mile awaiting his execution thinks that he is free to do what he wants in prison. (laughs) Just awaiting the execution of his sentence. Sin reigns over him. He's He's not a basically good person who occasionally commits sin. He is a slave of sin. He's in bondage to sin, do you see? And part of the insidious, the deceitful nature of this slavery is that most people are completely ignorant of their slavery. It's like the guy that I had lunch with. Ignorant of his bondage, ignorant of his slavery. Sin exercises its reign, or sin exercises its dominion in death. Sin leads to death, brings forth death, results in death, operates within the sphere of death. Sin is within the realm of death. And not only a a physical death, but a spiritual death as well. Both spiritual and physical death. Your spiritual death is evidenced in your living life for yourself. Your spiritual death is evidenced by your life being lived after the flesh and not according to the spirit. You want to know that you're spiritually dead? I have no no interest really in the things of God. Spiritually dead? Yeah, I don't really give any kind of day-to-day concern to the things of God or to the word of God, or to what God thinks of me, or whether or not I'm living a life that's pleasing to him or not. I give more concern to the things that I want to do. Things that occupy my attention are those things that I'm concerned with, are the things that I desire. They really have nothing to do. I'll Listen, I'll go to church on Sunday, and I'll go listen to that sermon, and I'll go sing some hymns. I'll check that box. But the other six days of the week, I'm really not concerned about my sin, my relationship to God, what Jesus Christ has done or not done, I'm just gonna live life for myself. You're spiritually dead. You're spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. And that spiritual death points forward to a physical death that will end up with you dying eternally. Death to the one who perishes in hell, that one can't die Fully and completely. Death clings to that one. And for eternity, death, you are forever dying. Death clings to you and you cannot be free from it. Spiritual death leads to physical death, which is an eternal death to the one who dies apart from Jesus Christ. Eternally dying in torment. Verse 21, so that just as sin reigned in death, 
In the same manner, or even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We often hear that grace is defined as undeserved favor, right? The undeserved favor of God, something given freely to someone who doesn't deserve it, grace, right? But the grace of God that we see described in Scripture refers not merely to favor poured out on undeserving sinners, but rather the grace of God that we see revealed in Scripture is God's favor poured out on hell-deserving sinners. It's not merely that it's undeserved. Grace is grace because we deserve precisely the opposite. (laughs) Where sin abounds, grace superabounds. So that as sin reigns through death, Grace reigns much more in a superabundant way, much more considering that grace, that grace reigns through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, such that believers are given eternal life through him, eternal life. Notice that, that like the law, grace does not enter in alongside our own righteousness, right? Doesn't enter in as a, a bit of help, right? You just need a little push to get you over the hill. You've got to work your own way up the ladder. It's going to give you just a little push. Grace doesn't come in just to sort of help you along. No. And praise God, no. Because if it has anything to do with our efforts, we are doomed eternally. We will die. We will perish. You will spend eternity in hell. No. Grace does all for you. Grace reigns through the righteousness of another. doesn't come alongside your righteousness. Grace reigns by giving you as a free gift of God the righteousness of another, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one righteous. And his righteousness given as a gift through grace. Just as sin reigns, producing the certainty of death, Grace reigns through righteousness, producing the certainty of everlasting or eternal life. Just as sin acts in its reign over fallen men, grace acts, works as it were, in its reign over redeemed believers. The very use of the word reign there in verse 21 suggests the presence of a working power. A working power, not merely a passive thing or a, um, a passive declaration, if you will. Grace works. Listen to this from Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Listen. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us, this grace teaches us that denying ungodliness, denying worldly lusts, It teaches us that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. That is a certain result of the reign of grace. When grace reigns in the life of one who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that's what grace reign, grace's reign, it's what it looks like. Let me ask you, is that what your life looks like? Does that describe you? Is the grace of God teaching you to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts? 
Is grace teaching you that you should live soberly, righteously, godly in the present age? Are you looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing? Does your life look like that? Is it marked by that? Looking for the great, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us so that, for the purpose that, he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Does that describe your life? That's the power of grace reigning in the life of a genuine believer who's turned from sin to put their faith and trust in Christ. The one indwelt by God's spirit. Grace reigns in the life of the believer. This is not a hope so. It's not a I wish so. This is a certain result of the reign of grace. It produces a people who are being purified. It produces a people, hearts and minds, focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. It produces a people, hopeful for the return of Jesus Christ, zealous for good works. Grace is at work producing that people. At this point, I'd like to ask you a question, considering that. If you've turned from your sin to put your faith in Jesus Christ to save you, and listen, this is not, I walked an aisle when I was seven and said some prayer. That's nowhere in the Bible, folks. That's a lie. If it's not in the Bible, it's not true. That's a lie. You can't be saved by walking some aisle saying some prayer. You can't be saved by going to mass, saying your Hail Marys and Our Fathers. The Bible says that we're converted when we turn from sin to put faith, saving faith in Jesus Christ, entrusting ourselves to him as our own righteousness that we might be delivered from the wrath on judgment day, the wrath of God. If you've turned from sin to put your faith in Jesus Christ, having turned in faith to Jesus Christ, you now have been justified in the sight of God, declared righteous, reconciled to God, Christ's own righteousness being given to you as a free gift of God's grace, such that you're no longer in, your bo in bondage to sin, such that you're no longer under the constant condemnation of God's law, but rather now, you are the beneficiary of God's grace at work in you to produce holiness. Does that now mean that you no longer have any responsibility to obey God's law? Having been saved by grace, God's law doesn't matter anymore at all. It doesn't matter. I'm no longer under the condemnation of law. I'm no longer under law. I'm under grace. Does that mean that you no longer have any responsibility to obey God? No. But you're no longer under law, you're under grace. Do you see how many people twist that passage? Look at Romans chapter 6, flip the page. Romans chapter 6, drop down there to verse 12. Verse 12. Paul answers this very objection, verse 12, where he says, Therefore, therefore, in light of these things, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. In other words, obey God. Don't sin against him. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Why is that? Because through faith in Jesus Christ, you've been set free from bondage to sin. 
You've been taken out from under the condemnation of the law. The law no longer condemns you. Sin no longer has dominion over you. Why? Because grace is now reigning over you to eternal life. You've been forgiven of your sin. You've been declared righteous in God's sight, and you will live eternally in him. Sin doesn't have dominion over you any longer. Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law. You're not under the condemnation of the law anymore. You're under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're no longer under law but under grace? Shall we live it up? Do we not have responsibility to obey God anymore? Certainly not. You should not continue to sin. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. When a sinner turns to Jesus Christ in genuine saving faith, the penalty of sin is taken out of the way. The penalty of sin has been paid for by Jesus Christ. The power of sin has been broken. And now that grace of God at work in the heart of a believer, in the life of a believer, that grace of God is gradually, it's called sanctification, right? Separating us, the believer, from the presence of sin in their life. Power of sin broken. They're no longer under the reign of sin. They're no longer under the dominion of sin. They are no longer slaves of sin as a master that they have to obey. They're no longer under the condemnation of the law. They're no longer under the curse of the law. They have been set free from their bondage, right? The captives, the captives have been set free. Captives are loose. Grace comes in like a whelming flood. Grace pours in in power. It's not that you are set free from the moral obligations of the law. You are set free from your slavery to sin that you might obey the moral obligations of the law. And grace is given to aid. You're not set free from any responsibility to the law of God. That's called antinomianism. That's lawlessness. You are set free to obey it. And grace gives you the power to do so. And in that sense, grace doesn't merely initiate salvation. Right? A lot of people think or conceive of grace as something happens at the very beginning when you're saved. Right? God gave me grace. Now, grace is a continual outpouring of God's help. A continual outpouring of the grace of God is needed to live this life for him. John Bunyan said this. I think this is helpful. Run, John, run. The law commands, but the law gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. The gospel bids us fly and gives us wings. A rigid matter was the law, demanding brick and denying straw. But when, the gospel, when with gospel tongue it sings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. Are you under law for justification? Now having been set free from sin, are you under law in order to maintain right standing with God? 
Absolutely not. And that's the error of the Jews. Turn to Romans 10 with me. Romans 10. Having been set free from sin, from slavery to sin, from bondage to sin, does it mean now that you maintain your right standing with God by pursuing righteousness under the law? No, may it never be. Can you attain to the righteousness you need by pursuing works under the law? It's impossible. Romans chapter 10, look at verse 1. Brethren, Paul says, My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. They're very religious. But not according to knowledge. They don't know what they're doing. They're ignorant. They're blind. They're in darkness. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness... And that is the gift of righteousness that Paul's been talking about, right? Righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ, given as a gift to the sinner. They being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness by working really hard under the law, they have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, that we might see the exceeding sinfulness of sin. But where that sin abounded under the law, grace came in like a flood and superabounded all the more. Verse 21. So that as sin reigned, exercising its dominion through death, even so, or in the same manner, grace reigns. Through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, it reigns to eternal life through or by the means of the person and work of Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin's ultimate reign in death is seen most visibly, is seen most horrifically in the cross of Jesus Christ, where our sinless Savior died. You want to see sin exercising its dominion in the most tangible, the most visible, the most horrific way, that is seen at the cross of Jesus Christ. Sin's dominion, death's dominion, at the very same time, at that very same place, sin's dominion, death's dominion, was crushed by the sinless one. He lived a perfect life. He perfectly satisfied every demands every demand of God's perfect law. And he died perfectly satisfying the law's penalty against sin, bearing not his own sin, he had no sin to bear, but bearing the sins of his people. And it's at that very same point, it's at that very same crossroads, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, where human sin abounded, reaching its highest watermark, Human sin abounded to its highest degree where we see human sin reach the apex of its dominion. It's at that very time when sin abounded that grace came in like an overwhelming flood. That grace at the cross superabounds, comes in like a flood to save a wretch like me. To save a poor, ruined sinner like you. Where sin abounds, grace superabounds. Now think with me and notice from verse 21 how grace reigns. 
First, Paul says it reigns through righteousness. How do you experience, how is it that you are to experience the reign of grace? You experience the reign of grace through the gift of God of Christ's own righteousness. You experience the reign of grace by being given, as a gift of God's grace, Christ's own righteousness. It's through that gift of Christ's own righteousness that you are justified in God's sight, declared to be righteous, by which you receive all the benefits and all the blessings of having been justified through the person and work of Jesus Christ. You now, the recipient, the beneficiary of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Everything, all that pertains to life and godliness given to you through that justifying grace. How do you experience the reign of grace? You experience it through the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to you as a free gift. Grace reigns when God imputes when he credits or accounts the righteousness of Jesus Christ to you and you are justified. What is the end? What is the aim or the purpose of this grace-gifted righteousness? The end or the aim there, verse 21, is eternal life. Eternal life. What is the means by which it may be given? Verse 21, it is given through Jesus Christ our Lord, through his perfect person, through his perfect work, it's given through faith in him, and it reigns to eternal life. Grace reigns. If it reigns over sin through Christ's own righteousness, grace reigns over death through eternal life. Grace reigns over our own fallenness, our own depravity, through the work of our great mediator, the perfect one, the God-man, Jesus Christ. One of the most wonderful functions of the law of God, one of the most necessary functions of the law of God is that it points us and drives us, sends us fleeing to the grace of God expressed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see yourself this morning under the law's condemnation. If you consider your own life this morning and you see yourself as devoid of grace, devoid of hope then, flee to the cross. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Grace superabounds. Where sin abounds in your own life, God extends a free offer of grace through Jesus Christ, that it might abound to answer your greatest need. If you will turn from your sin and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and trust yourself to him, right? And the Lord says, he'll flood into your heart and soul the grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord and save you, forgive you, forgive you of all your sins, adopt you into the household of God, make you a child of God set you in the heavenlies, give you eternal life in him. Flee to the cross. I was reminded of Psalm 16, thinking about this. Paul's aim in working through these arguments with us from really from the end of chapter three all the way through the end of chapter eight, Paul's aim 
is to bolster our assurance to, for us to see and to understand the gift that we've been given, the, the security that we have in Jesus Christ. If God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, how much more will he also freely give us all things, right? Much more we, be, we shall be saved from wrath through his life. I was reminded of Psalm 16, 5. Oh Lord, this is the prayer of the one who's been justified, set free from sin, the one in whom grace reigns because of Jesus Christ. The psalmist says, oh Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices and my flesh also will rest in hope. We have a hope, brothers and sisters, that does not disappoint. Paul has been explaining that for those who have turned from their sin, for those who have entrusted themselves to Jesus Christ alone for salvation, the lines have truly fallen to us in pleasant places, brothers and sisters. We have a glorious inheritance, and ours is a hope that will not disappoint. We should praise and worship him. Um, as Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, therefore be zealous, right? always abounding in the work of the Lord. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we are grateful, Lord, to you for this great salvation in which we've been delivered. Really, at the thought of that, words simply fail. Our hearts, Lord, are full of gratitude, overflowing with gratitude, knowing, seeing, understanding the depths from which we have been saved, seeing the depravity, the wickedness, the iniquity laid up in our own hearts, our rebellion against you. And seeing that, understanding that, reveling in, exulting in, rejoicing in the grace of our God through our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, seeing the depths from which we have been uh, rescued, seeing and understanding the heights to which we have been exalted, or heights to which we have been raised. Lord, we love you and thank you and glory in you and rest in you and trust in you and hope in you. And we love you, Lord, and devote our lives to you. Zealous, your own special people, zealous for good works. We commit ourselves to you. Lord, we worship you and we praise you. And we'll do so in eternity as trophies of your grace. Help us, Lord. We acknowledge inward corruption that still remains and need your grace at work in us to will and to do according to your good pleasure. We need uh, your help or to live the Christian life, to overcome sin, to mortify the flesh, to live by the Spirit. Strengthen us, Lord, by your Spirit to live for you. Um, increase our faith, Lord, we pray. Uh, increase our affections, Increase our desire for you. Cause us by your spirit to hunger and to thirst for righteousness. And may it be, Lord, a testimony 
May it be to the praise of the glory of your grace. We pray all these things in the blessed name of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has given himself for us. In his name, amen.